it's just me, but now that I know that there's a hymn about gray hair, and I'm not feeling okay about that, it sounds so lovely that, that gray hair may adorn my temples. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, we'll talk about that later, I think. Yeah. Welcome again to worship. Our scripture for today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I have to say I'm super excited. Um, I, I love the Old Testament. Uh, just like some people are Norwegian and Danish, I'm German and Jewish. So I like, these are my people. I'm so excited. So today we're going to take a look at a New Testament text that harkens back, that looks back to the Old Testament. And I'm going to do my very best not to preach for four hours solid. I promise. I promise. Some of you look worried. It's okay. They'll turn the mic off eventually. It's true. As we enter this time of study, I want you to consider a time when you were trying to convince someone of something. Have you ever tried to do that? To persuade someone? Maybe sway them into changing direction or look at the world differently? Maybe you were trying to encourage someone to choose a particular path. I know we've all done it. Maybe it's the little debates we have with ourselves about what we'll have for dinner or discussions with a student or a friend as they pick classes or choose a college or set their sights on learning a trade. Think about a time when you've tried to persuade someone. How'd you do it? I have to admit, personally, I usually get historical. I'm not, I'm not one to get hysterical, personally, but I will often get historical. I will share with you experiences from my past, because as a, as a, well, usually I think I intend it to be an encouragement. I think more often than not, it's a warning, right? I'll share stories from my past, things that, that I think might help you. I might even, you know, if I'm trying to convince someone of something, I might find a YouTube person. One who agrees with me, of course, and I might share a video. If rational doesn't work, I may turn to the emotional plea. And if that doesn't work, I often rely on being persistent. I just keep at it again and again. You might call it nagging, but you would be wrong. It's called persistent. We read about persistent people in the Bible, and that is what I'm going to call it. Think about a time when you tried to convince someone of something. Ooh, even better, think of a time when someone tried to convince you of something. How did they do it? Did it work? How did they go about it? What was it like to be a part of a conversation where the other person is trying to, to change your heart, to sway you, to influence your actions? Sometimes those moments can feel more like confrontation than conversation. If you've been with us in the previous weeks, you know that we've been standing on the edge of the first century church in the city of Corinth, walking along with our early Christian brothers and sisters as they try to figure out how to be the church, how to live as Christians in a world that is complicated and diverse. As we again stand on the edge of these conversations between the church and their founding pastor, the Apostle Paul, we find ourselves in the midst 
of a debate. These are the two extremes. Are you ready? Some in the church have decided that because they are forgiven, because they are forgiven by God, they can do whatever they want. They, they have a reason. Are you ready? Here's their case. They think that because they are baptized, which is a physical event with an eternal promise, that we are marked by the cross of Christ and sealed by his Holy Spirit forever, because of baptism and because of Holy Communion, a regular meal when we hear again and again that we are forgiven and set free from the powers of sin and death, because of baptism and Holy Communion, because of God's promise that we see clearly in the midst of these events, they can do whatever they want. Their position is our actions in this world don't matter because we are saved by God's grace. Before you choose a side, that's just position one, okay? Others in the church fell on the other side of this debate and they feel that because we are forgiven by God, chosen as his children, we must live lives worthy of that relationship. Not only do our actions matter, but willful disobedience can cost us our salvation. That's position two. These are the two extremes, right? And you can Imagine that much like our world today, people fell into these two groups, but also everywhere in between, right? Faithful, faithful people who loved God and who were loved by God fell on all points of this spectrum. There was no simple resolution and what started as a conversation grew into a dispute. Everyone gathered their evidence and their rationale and started trying to convince one another. To cover their bases, they also reached out to Paul. His reply is what we have contained in the book of 1 Corinthians, the book that we've been studying during this series we're calling Messy Grace. Over the weeks, we've seen a few different facets of their debate and struggle as those within the church of Corinth have tried to figure out how to live as Christians in the world and how to love one another in the church. Not an easy thing to do. To make it more difficult, their questions are deeply personal, and each person is passionate about their position. So Paul seeks to address the complexity of the situation and to speak to the heart of the matter. Considering all Christ has done, considering we are chosen, we are given new life, we are forgiven of our sins and shown amazing and unmerited grace, how do we live in light of that? Paul makes his case. He reaches back into history and pulls out some examples that speak to this situation. And Paul's going to make a case that the people of Israel were in a very similar situation. The people of Israel thousands of years before the people of Corinth existed. 
were chosen by God, rescued by God's mighty hand, and given new life. Here's the quick recap. Are you ready? Generations before the church of Corinth, generations before Jesus walked the earth, there was a man, and his name would be Abraham. God made him a promise. The Lord said to Abram, who would later be renamed Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and, I, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. This is my favorite part. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram set out as the Lord had told him. These words come to us from Genesis chapter 12. This is where it starts for God's chosen people. And God kept that promise that he made to Abraham's descendants. God made them into a mighty nation. Abram, then Isaac, then Jacob led God's people. And they flourished. They settled in a, a land named Egypt. They grew in number. They were not a perfect people. As a matter of fact, the, the pages of the Bible, if you ever want some really fascinated reading, start in the Old Testament. They cover everything that you will find in a modern-day soap opera. The pages of Scripture are one stumble and struggle after another. Yet in every situation, God proves faithful faithful. While the people of Israel were living in Egypt, there was a political shift, and they went from living in prosperity to living under the thumb of persecution and slavery. In the midst of this persecution, God sent Moses. Moses was to lead the people of Israel out of their captivity in Egypt and bring them to the promised land. This relocation effort was filled with hardship and suffering and faith and obedience. And yes, these are the historical events that the movie Prince of Egypt is based on, the animated musical. Yes, yep, that's the one. God led his people through the Red Sea, guided them with a pillar of cloud and fire through the wilderness, fed them with manna and quail, and ensured that they had water throughout their journey to the promised land. Yet in that leading, even though God was physically present, the people of Israel struggled. And those struggles form the foundation of Paul's response today. We're going to take a look at our passage in three chunks. So I invite you to find your Bible or use the Bible app so that you can refer back as we move through. I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with the first verse. Paul writes this. For I do not want you to be ignorant. That, that word sounds super mean to us. It would be like uninformed. I do not want you to be uninformed of the facts, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they were all, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Wait, what? That sounds awfully mean, don't you think? He wants them to know their history, to know that they're not alone, to know that other people have struggled with their faith. Also, many in Corinth prized wisdom and logic. So Paul wants to be sure that they consider all of the facts. Paul points out their link to the chosen people of God. The Israelites were brought through the waters of the Red Sea and given new life. Just like the Corinthians were brought through the waters of baptism and given new life. The Israelites were fed spiritual food, manna and quail, in the wilderness. They were provided for as they wandered. The Corinthian church had bread and wine, the communion meal that Christ provides to this very day. And then Paul takes a rather harsh turn. This isn't your regular encouragement to follow the rules or to live a self-controlled life. Paul has linked the Israelites to the Corinthian Christians. They are chosen and blessed by God. And when the Israelites did things that God was not pleased with, their actions had repercussions. Let's see where Paul goes. It seems kind of harsh so far, so let's walk ahead a little bit. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. It is just getting grimmer, right? And this is the one that makes me nervous. And do not grumble. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Here Paul gives us four examples, four events where the people of Israel chose their own way over God's way. And I have to admit, in reading this, I'm a little uncomfortable. First, we have a moment in the life of Israel where God is physically present he is in a pillar of cloud and fire and guides them. Every morning they wake up, there is manna from heaven. How can you not be obedient to a God who brings you breakfast? Come on! God provides. God is faithful in ways that they can see and touch and eat. And they still, they still choose their own way. Paul has chosen four moments that link back to the struggles of the Corinthian church. Again and again, their desire is to put their own needs first. Their behaviors are self-indulgent, and it seems as though they've turned God into a get-out-of-jail-free card. 
rather than honoring God as their creator and savior. It seems that Paul is saying that our actions do have consequences, but that is only part of the question, right? It doesn't take long to learn that our actions have consequences. Anybody who's touched a hot stove, right? They know, you know your actions have consequences. Yet at the root of this question is an even deeper one. If I touch the hot stove, if I am disobedient, if I do things that I know are outside of God's will and his desire for me, am I still loved by God? Paul seeks to answer this underlying and deeply personal question. And he's showing that throughout the history of the people of Israel, from the first promise given to Abraham through Moses and the chosen people to the days of Jesus arguing with the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the time, all the way to this moment in Corinth, the Corinthians stand on the cusp of the same question. Do my actions have eternal consequences? Is there something that I can do to sidestep God's grace? Is there a sin so great that it pushes me outside of God's love? Is there something that will finally make God turn his face away? And if the text stopped right there, if this was all the evidence that we had, Paul's litany of all the ways that the people of God have gotten it wrong, then we may be left to wonder with the people of Corinth, do our actions have eternal consequences? But Paul does not stop there. Paul continues past the initial question, past their arguments and justification for their current actions, past the debate and the rationalizations, and again, Paul speaks to the heart of the matter. Paul says these things happened to the Israelites as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except that is common to all mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. For as relieved and excited and comforted as I am that God is faithful, even when I am not, that God's taking care of my eternity even when I'm not, I do have to say I'm not so excited about that last verse. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. I like that. But he does not stop there. But when you are tempted... He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
We go from stark and pointed examples to warning and encouragement. First, Paul points out that the people of Corinth hold much in common with ancient Israel. Their example is important. Yet one thing has changed. And I love this phrase. The culmination of the ages has come. Isn't that like, it's beautiful poetry. I had to look up what it meant. Here we go. The culmination of the ages has come. This is another way of saying that we are on this side of the cross. Jesus, the culmination of the ages, the one in whom all of time is wrapped up in. Paul says, for you, church, Christ has come. Today is different than it was for the Israelites. We live on this side of the cross. Even still, don't be prideful, Paul says. Pride in your wisdom, pride in your ability, pride to withstand all manners of temptation. Paul says you may be able to stand firm. But we know that our salvation, that our actions have consequences in this life. So don't be foolish. This is the warning. Then Paul points to the reality of the situation. What you're doing, what you're going through right now, others have gone through this before. Your struggles to put God first, your struggles with sexual purity, your struggles to be obedient to Christ, to be faithful in all circumstances, these are the same. The same struggles that others have gone through before. And there is some comfort in knowing that we're not alone. We've had the examples and we've heard the warning. We see the reality that we are not alone in our strife. And now Paul reminds us of the promise. Paul says, do not lose heart, because in all of this, God is faithful. As Paul reflects on the actions of the ancient Israelites, as we walk with the people of Corinth through their struggles to live faithfully in the world, to love one another, it's it's easy to focus only on the actions of the people involved, to look only at the people and the events, and there's some wisdom in that, right? We should take their advice. We should take their example and, and learn from it. What did they do, and how might I do a better job, right? More, more information is a good thing. In the midst of looking for guidance on how we should live, let's not lose sight of the one whose grace we live under. As we've looked back, we see that the people of Israel have done the same things as the people in Corinth. And if I went around the room, which I will not do, but if I did, if I took a poll, I bet we could find a list of struggles that we have in this room as well. Temptations much like, much like the people of Corinth. And the people of Corinth struggled just like the people of Israel struggled. Same temptations. At least we're consistent, right? 
And in all of this, we see that God is consistent as well. Our God is always faithful. Faithful to his promise spoken to Abraham in the ancient days. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Do you see how God is the actor in all of those promises? It is God who will raise up a people and God who will do the blessing. The people of Corinth stand in, in the shadow of that moment. They stand as recipients of that blessing. As we've heard again and again, while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. You and I, we stand as recipients of that same blessing. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because of God's actions, there is nowhere we can run. There is no place too far, no escape from God's grace. This is our God. Our God who stands with us when we mess up. Our God who stands with us in the midst of a world that sometimes seems to be in disarray. And we can lean into Paul's encouragement that God is faithful, that he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I want us to lean into this, church, that God is faithful. Paul does not say this lightly. This is not a passing comment. Just as his previous examples span the history of the people of God, so too does this reality, that God is faithful. In the ancient text in Deuteronomy 31, Moses says to Joshua, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. In the second letter to the church in Corinth, as Paul reflects on a continued struggle in his own life, God's comfort to Paul and to each of us is this. God's grace is sufficient. It is enough for you. God's power is made perfect in weakness. When we are weak, when we make poor choices, when we struggle with the consequences of our actions, we can rest in the fact that God's actions have eternal consequences for us as well. Because of what Christ has done, you and I, we are sealed by that promise. There are some immutable laws, right? You touch a hot stove, you're going to hurt your hand. This is one of those. Because of what Christ has done, you are loved by God. 
You can run from this if you like. But I want us to lean in. Of all the things in our week, of all the things in our day, of the, the worries and struggles of, of the time that we live in, I want us to lean in to this truth that you are loved by God in a way that cannot be altered. That God is faithful. And his actions have eternal consequences for you and for me, for the people of Corinth. That God is faithful this day and every day. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, the promise speaks loudly that we would know that you are our God, that we would know that, that all the things that have come before, that, that your word is true, that we are forgiven. But there's stuff in my life. There's stuff that we keep hidden. So today, Lord, I pray that your promise would ring loudly like a church bell, that into every crevice, every dark room, every, every little piece of our lives that we think is hidden, that we think is too awful, too much, that your promise would speak to our hearts, that your actions have eternal consequences for who we are. And we are grateful. We are grateful that when we get it wrong, that you make us right we are grateful that when we struggle and fight, that you make us holy, set apart, perfect in your sight. And we are grateful that you are constantly trading us our sin for your holiness, our brokenness for your wholeness, our hurt for your amazing comfort and grace. As we gather around the table, Lord, we pray that you would be present in this meal as you always are, that we might take this presence with us into the world that we live in, and that this promise might ring loudly in our ears each day to come. Thank you, Father God. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.